Well, good evening again and welcome. I'm glad you're here. Uh, we've been uh, praying about this night and uh, planning for it for some time and just believe that God is going to uh, begin to do uh, some greater discipleship in our church and we hope in, in all of the churches that are involved here. Uh, if you have your Bibles open to Genesis chapter 2, if you're inclined to take notes, there's some notes in that program that you received. Um, and the uh, first session there entitled Setting Your Relationship GPS. My first girlfriend was named Kelly. She had long blonde hair and the coolest rug of any of the students in kindergarten. <laughs> now, it wasn't quite this long ago. <laughs> It feels like it was that long ago. That's probably when my mom was in kindergarten there. I don't know, but uh, I don't. Do, do kindergartners still take a nap on a rug? Yeah, cool. That's the best part of kindergarten, right there. Chocolate, uh, milk, milk and a rug. That's that's right there. Kelly was my first girlfriend. Boy, I would lay my rug next to her and rest in bliss. <laughs> Melissa was a girl from the church youth group who attended my junior high school, I had a huge crush on her, but I never got the nerve up to tell her. Kathy was a tennis team acquaintance in high school for which I had great interest, but only little interaction due to my parents' rules about who was uh, acceptable, especially somebody from a different faith. Then there was the girl in high school whose name I can't remember, who I called, this is before cell phones of course, I called and I drove by her house but she never returned my interest. And if I had done it today, I might have got arrested for stalking. I'm not sure. You know, in retrospect, it's good that none of those acquaintances turned into relationships because I didn't have a clue about what a relationship between a boy and a girl was supposed to look like. The only thing I knew was that I wanted somebody to want me. Now, that's not a bad thing. But it's not enough to sustain a lifelong marriage. The common model of finding love today uh, is epitomized by our, our friend here. And, and I believe he has good intention. And I believe he does some good things. But what he says is, we're going to put you together with somebody else based on 29 dimensions of compatibility. And if you go to the website, that little phrase is trademarked. 29 dimensions of compatibility, because we all know the key to marriage is being compatible. And after you're married a while and you find out you're not compatible, the key then is to get somebody else with whom you are more compatible. And to repeat, and to repeat. In this model, the key to long-term relationship is finding the right person. In God's model of building a relationship, it begins with knowing what a lasting relationship looks like. You can't know where you're going. You can't know how to get somewhere if you don't know where you're going. Last weekend, I went to uh, Seattle. I, I uh, was doing some ministry in various places. I had to find places in Seattle, uh, Tacoma, and uh, Edgewood, which is next to Puyallup. It's on the edge of Puyallup. I guess that's why they call it Edgewood. And I set my GPS, and I went right there. Because I said, this is where I want to go. I don't want to go anywhere else. I want to go there. 
And the GPS took me right where I wanted to go. Tonight, I want to open God's Word and let God teach us what a lasting relationship looks like. Because then we can have the target in mind and we can say, that's where I'm headed, that's what I'm going to pursue. If I'm dating, I'm going to date in such a way to get there. If I'm married, I'm going to build that kind of a relationship. Please follow as I read about the first marriage in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air, and he brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper that was comparable to him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept, and he took one of his ribs, and he closed up the flesh in its place. Then, then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, woman, and he brought her to the man, and Adam said this, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. As we begin to look at marriage, the first point is the most obvious, and that is this. God created marriage to be social. Adam was alone. And it's not an accident that God caused the animals to parade by him, and after a while, Adam thought, hey, I don't know what you call these two different kinds, but there's two of each one, and there's only one of me. And I believe God did that so that when, when he brought the woman to Adam, he would go, yes! As if that takes anything special to get a guy to do that. <laughs> Could have brought any one of those girls to me that I talked about, and I would have went, yes! This is my woman! That's what Adam did. He was so excited. There is a counterpart to me. God goes to great pains to say that, that these two, these two were a pair. They were social. Now, this is the most common thing that we know about marriage. Marriage is a social relationship. Um, it, it, it's companionship. It's two people doing things together. It's two people living life together. God goes beyond just our idea of companionship, though, and he says, Adam and Eve... They were comparable. They were, they were made to go together. God didn't make two Adams, and He didn't make two Eves. And I'm, and I'm not really thinking about the whole, the whole issue that's before us in our country today. I'm thinking about how did God set up companionship? He made two unique kinds of individuals. And He said, these two go together. And so we've coined a term in Christianity. It's a term companionship. Adam knew that this is the one who would, who would create blessing in, in, in just a human, social kind of way. The author of Ecclesiastes makes reference to it in one of my, my favorite wedding passages. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. If they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. How can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him. Companionship is that wonderful aspect of marriage in which we live life together. 
There have been studies done that demonstrate people who have a long-term successful marriage are, are happier and healthier and, and so on and so forth because the two help each other. And God designed marriage that way. Uh, I've been married 36 years. And uh, a few years ago, I, I was asked to go to Bangladesh and to China to do some ministry and got everything planned and, boy, I'm packing and I'm getting visas and all this stuff. And I, and I go off across the world and I, I get to Bangladesh and I lay down on, on the pillow and I go, I'm not going to be home for three weeks. And I can't call my wife and I can't text her and I can't email her I thought boy that's a stupid plan I'm no kidding that's how far ahead I think I didn't realize it till that moment before that we mostly always travel together as much as we can you know and uh, please I'm not trying to paint myself as that wonderful warm lovey-dovey close all the time husband but I'm telling you she's my companion and God designed marriage that way companionship it's sort of the cornerstone of what the relationship is supposed to look like. But it goes beyond companionship, and it's not just a social relationship, it is a singular relationship. Uh, Look at Genesis 2.24. Now, you understand that Adam didn't write the book of Genesis. He lived part of it. But God caused probably Moses to write it down. And so in Genesis 2.24, we get the divine commentary Adam didn't write this. Moses wrote it. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, I I take from that that Adam and Eve got married. Just like these people did a couple of weeks ago, or a month ago, or however long it was, the time flies. Stood right here. Stood right here, and they got married. In marriage, God makes two into one. They shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one. Now, you say, Dave, you're stretching it a little bit here. Talk about marriage with Adam and Eve. Really? Look what Jesus said. The Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him, and saying to him, it's lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason. Now, you, if you know your Bible, you know that this was just a test. They were trying to trip Jesus up. But it was a question about divorce, so it's a question about marriage. And Jesus answered them, Have you not read, he's making reference to this passage, Have you not read that he who made him at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then, they are no longer two, but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus was questioned about divorce and remarriage, and he gave the answer from Genesis 2. Adam and Eve became married because God joined them together. Marriage doesn't happen because we have a, uh, a legal ritual. Now, I, I'm all for the legal ritual, believe me. We signed the certificate right here. <laughs> I'm all for that. But marriage happens because two people commit themselves, and God in heaven says one plus one equals one. The two shall become one. This makes marriage a new existence for two people. You're not the same as you were before. Now you may feel the same. 
in our contemporary American society, many people think of marriage as sort of two people going down the highway side by side. They're traveling together, they're living together, their paths intersect, but they're essentially two individuals. In fact, this, this is so strong that, you know, with the feminist movement, they said, keep your own name, keep your identity. Now, I don't think the woman should take the man's identity. I think the two of them together should become one. Marriage is a new existence for two people. If the target in my mind is I'm going to get somebody that's going to do some things for me, but I'm going to keep on my track, you're not pursuing marriage the way God has designed it. We see this depicted on on television shows when people get engaged or they get married and then one of them has the career opportunity of a life going this way and the other one has the career opportunity of a life going that way. And what will they do? The Christian says, I don't know what we're going to do, but we're going to do it together. Because one plus one equals one. This makes marriage the primary relationship. had a, a classmate in Bible school many years ago who said, if today if people don't abort their children, they tend to worship them. And it's not at all hard to find parents, one parent or the other, who, who live for their children. And if you live that way, your marriage will never be what it can be in the Lord. In fact, it may come to crisis because the permanent relationship between two married people is just that relationship. You'll have children, and they'll always be your children, but they'll only be with you for a while, and then they will form their own relationship. And there has to be a target in our mind that says, my relationship with my wife, my relationship with my husband, that is where I am going to live for the rest of my life or or as long as God allows us to be uh, alive. The marriage relationship is the permanent relationship. Children don't always like this either. Um, when our, uh, you know, in, in case you don't know, this guy who was leading the singing is my son-in-law, so that tells you how old I am, and uh, my grandkids are downstairs. But when my daughter was about the, uh, you know, grade school age or so on, my wife and I were going to go out for dinner on Friday night. Not, not this daughter. She was always very mature and self-sustained. But her twin sister would come and say, No, no, why do you have to go? Why can't I go with you? Because I didn't marry you. <laughs> and, and, and when we saw her coming, we would hug on purpose. And she would, she would go like a dog trying to get into bed to squirm in there between us. Oh, no, don't do that. What is that? I don't know where that comes from, other than just the normal human tendency to always want yourself first. But we persist. There we go. God created marriage to be social and singular and sexual. Uh, We shouldn't shy away from that. It's a wonderful part of marriage. Uh, 
And certainly, we see that in Genesis chapter 2, they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked and were not ashamed. And of course, that's because they still had absolutely perfect bodies (laughs) and sinless minds. And uh, those of us who are married can hardly fathom that kind of perfection. It would be an awesome thing to someday we'll be that perfect again. But God, the way God describes sex is important because he describes it differently than we do. You know, the word sex in the Bible, whether New Testament or Old, does not refer to the action of, of physical intercourse. It refers to gender, male or female. When God refers to sexual intercourse, he uses words like this, to lie with. In the Old Testament, that's the most common term. And it's kind of like today we say we slept together or they slept together. And the reason for this appears to be, at least in part, that God is, uh, he's not X-rated very often. Most of the X-rated stuff in the Bible is about sin. When God talks positively, uh, he talks uh, kind of gently. You know, in the New Testament, there's a number of words for sinful sex, like adultery or fornication or uncleanness. Um, but an interesting word that ref- clearly refers to sex in, is in 1 Corinthians 7, and it's called the affection which is due. Most literally, it means a good thought which is due. But it's not just the thought that counts. Okay? Because in the context, you, you remember 1 Corinthians 7, he says, don't deprive yourselves of sexual connection except by mutual consent for the purpose of prayer. In other words, a a fast, uh, just like you would fast from food, you could could fast from sex to give yourselves to prayer. But the term that he used is the affection which is due or the thoughts which are due. In other words, we owe affection to our husbands, to our wives. And then, of course, the first reference in the Scripture is the term one flesh. And... I think all of this together tells us that besides physical pleasure, there is an intimacy element there that sex goes beyond the physical. In, Gen- in Hebrews 13.4, God refers to the marriage bed. And he contrasts that with fornication, which is always the broad word for sexual sin of all types and adultery. The marriage bed is undefiled. He doesn't say that the sex act is undefiled. He says the marriage bed. And so he he clearly links sexuality with marriage. And and in an opposite sense, he talks about um, the connection that happens uh, when there is sinful sex. Do you not know that he who is joined to a a harlot or an immoral woman (coughs) is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Now, this does not mean that every time you have sex, you're married. It does not mean that, because clearly in the Scripture, this is much broader than just the sex act. But what it does mean is there is something unique to this area of sin and righteousness. And God clearly says, you are, you are doing damage, you're, you're hurting yourself more than just the physical act. This is a personal act, it is an intimate act. And that makes 
that makes the sexual union more than just a physical thing, and it should be treated as more than just a physical thing. Godly marriage is social, it's singular, it's sexual, and it's sacrificial. In the New Testament, there are two words for love, and in the Greek language, New Testament was written in Greek, there's a third word for love. Now that, that third word, the most common word in the Greek language for love is the word eros. We get it into our English language in the word erotic. And, uh, you know, that, that has both good and bad connotations. But we usually use that word to refer to something that is sexually stimulating, either for good or for harm. That was the common word for love to the average Greek person in the first century. And it kind of equated to what we would call romantic love today. It wasn't just about physical. It was a little broader than that. It was romantic love. Now, they also had a word. Uh, and the, the second most common word is the word phileo. We get Philadelphia, the brotherly love. This is that word that's translated that way in the New Testament. And then they had a word that they seldom used in secular Greek. And that's the word Agape which is the most common word for love in the New Testament. Now, what's really fascinating about this is that there's a parallel to our society today. If you, the, the, the word agape has to do with the kind of love which is sacrificial. It's defined by this verse. This is how we understand love, because he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. That is not touchy-feely love. Touchy-feely love is when I looked at my wife across the band room at Western Baptist College and I went, hubba, hubba, there's a good-looking woman who's talented. Right on the top of my list for let's get to know her. Okay? That's not agape love, that's, that's eros love. Now that's a fine thing in its place. But that word doesn't even occur in the New Testament. The word that's used far more than any other word is the word agape, which means to lay down the life, to make a sacrifice, to care for someone, to care for someone on purpose. <coughs> now, it's, it occurs to me that the Greek society parallels our own. Because I, I know I could go home and turn the TV on right now and I could see an example of Eros love. And I could also see an example of, of companionship or brotherly love, phileo love. But I'd have to look a lot farther to see sacrificial love. And, and so God says, look, here's the deal about marriage. Your marriage is companionship. It is two people existing together. It is a sexual relationship, a physical relationship, an affectionate relationship, and it is to be characterized by sacrificial love, laying down your life for one another. This, this sacrificial love is really defined here in Romans 5. We, you know, we can see here that it means to lay down your life, but when we look at the reason Jesus laid down his life, we really get the meaning. For when we were without strength, in other words, we didn't have anything to contribute to the relationship. In due time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For scarcely, or, or like maybe for a righteous man one would die, maybe for a really good man somebody would dare to die, but God shows us what sacrificial love means when He loved us when we were still sinners. In other words, He didn't look down and say, How, where is a really great human being? Oh, I'm going to love that one. No, He just said, here's a whole bunch of people that need help. I'm going to love them. That's agape love. That's the kind of love that is supposed to characterize marriage. You know, and it's, it's depicted for us here in 1 Corinthians 13. You're familiar with that. If, if, you've been around, if you've been around church or weddings, you've heard this. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy, does not parade itself, is not puffed up, doesn't behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. You know what? We love that passage of Scripture, but we don't live it. That is the hardest. That has got to be one of, if not the hardest thing in the New Testament to live consistently. If you want to take home an application from tonight, grab that program where that passage of Scripture, 1 Corinthians 13, is laid out and start memorizing it. Commit it to memory and say, oh God, help me to love this way more. I, I understand the companionship. I enjoy the sex, but the whole sacrifice thing, that, that's not natural to me. And that's right, it's not natural. Jo a joyful, peaceful, lasting marriage requires agape love. Agape love is what the wedding vows are based on when it says, say them with me, for better, for worse for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health. That's agape love. It doesn't take any agape love to go on a honeymoon. Not much. But when the honeymoon's over, then we need some agape love. God created marriage to be settled. Let's go back to those words of Christ to understand what I mean. He, he said, have you not read that he who made him made him male and female? Man shall leave his father and mother, be joined his wife, the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's one of my favorite parts of the wedding. Maybe, maybe you know, I like to preach, but it's really cool to come to that part and say, as a minister of the gospel and by the power vested in me by the state of Washington, I now pronounce you husband and wife. What God has joined together, let not man separate. That, that's, that's, a, that's a really cool thing. And that's what God intends. Let not man separate. We don't have time to study all the passages about divorce and that's not the, the point of our time together. You, you could look at Malachi 2, you could look at 1 Corinthians 7, and just realize that consistently throughout the Scripture, God says, don't get divorced. Um, Malachi 2 talks about the violence that happens in divorce. You know what the violence is? The violence is He has made two people into one, and when there is a divorce, that one new thing gets ripped in two. We should approach the building of relationships with lifelong commitment in mind. Wouldn't it be great if we could read people's minds when they're, they're coming down the aisle, they're saying those vows, you could look in there and say, are they really thinking about lifelong? Or are they thinking, well, you know, we'll give it a whirl. 
God created marriage to be settled. And then he created it to be structured. This is the least favorite part of Christian marriage and of God's plan for marriage. Uh, it comes from Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wife. Agape your wife. Lay down your life for your wife, just as Christ also agape the church and gave himself for her. I, I just want to touch on this tonight. You know, maybe sometime we'll, we'll take some time in, in another conference someday, Lord willing, and unpack some of that. But let me just say this. If you're a believer in Christ, you have been willing to accept what God's Word says about salvation. I believe that Christ died for my sins, that I'm a sinner, that I, I can't get saved without Him, and I gladly believe in Him and look forward to eternity in heaven. But some of the same people who will say that will turn around and say, I see what God says in Ephesians 5, but you know what? I just don't like it. And there's all kinds of reasons and all kinds of excuses and books written. Well, I had somebody handed me a book one time. <coughs> and this scholar had looked in secular Greek and found one place where one word was used upside down, and he came all the way back to the Bible, and he said, the Bible doesn't mean what it says. You can do anything you want. You can stand in your head and twist the Scripture. God means what he said, and it's clear in the Scripture. Now, for those of you who may not be believers in Christ tonight, and I, I don't know everybody that's here, or maybe you're a believer, and, uh, and I could just try to convince you a little bit, let me just ask you this question. Can you show me a model of marriage that works better? Can you show me a model in our American society that's really working? Can you tell me what Oprah Winfrey's model for marriage is? Oh, that's right! She's not married! She can't seal the deal! I don't know why. Been with uh, Stedman for how? Isn't it terrible that I even know his name? How long have they been together? And apart and together and apart. And she's the one that has the panel of experts saying, This is what relationship is about. Really? How about Dr. Phil? He's only been married twice. He's no expert. Show me the model that works. Don't be, don't be shooting at my model, at God's model, unless you've got a better answer. And, and, and don't come up here and say, well, the model that works best is not to sign that piece of paper at all. I'll just stay loose. And hey, that only works for one person in one of those marriages. Don't, don't, don't try and pull that one past. God created us. And he created us to work, to function in a certain way. And when we follow that path, we get his blessing. We get the joy that he intended for us. And when we swim upstream, all we get is tired. God created marriage to be spiritual. God created marriage to be spiritual. Uh, the following passage uh, shows us in just a little teeny snapshot, the importance of the spiritual element in marriage. And it's back in 1 Corinthians 7. And 1 Corinthians 7 has a number of things to say about marriage. And one of the things it talks about is a, is a widow who's a Christian. And it says this, 
A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married. In other words, God, if you're a widow, a widower, it's okay to get remarried. God makes that clear. He's gracious to make it very clear to us. She's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. I love that. You can marry anybody you want that is a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, tomorrow, for those of you that are single, if you're going to come to my seminar tomorrow, I'm going to be a little more specific than that. But essentially, that's the deal. Only in the Lord. Why does God make that limitation? Why does God say, don't connect, don't marry an unbeliever? Well, he says that here in 1 Corinthians 6. And he says, don't be unequally yoked. And, and he uses an image that's a little foreign to most of us. And it has to do with, with two animals getting hooked in a harness together. And the image is that, if you can imagine, you have one, one really big animal and, and one really small animal, or, or one animal that walks fast and one that's slow, and you're going to put them in the harness. And he says that is an unequal yoke. He uses that, that imagery to talk about believers and unbelievers. He said, there is no true connection between a believer and an unbeliever. How can Christ get along with, essentially, the devil or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? No, I know. Um, I know that God can be merciful. Uh, my dad was in the Navy in World War II, and he was not the model of godliness. And he went out and found him a good-looking woman and married her. My mama. Did he inquire as to her spiritual condition? No, he did not. Was she a believer? Nope. Was God merciful? And did she get saved within a short while after they got married and they went back to church and he actually got right with the Lord? Yeah, God was merciful. And I'm thankful. Okay? I understand God is merciful sometimes. But when we know God's explicit truth, we have to say, wait a minute, am I going to rebel against God to get God's blessing? Wait, wait a minute, what kind of convoluted thinking is that? Why does God require this? Why does God say, don't get in a yoke, don't get connected, don't get married? And I know the yoke is broader than just marriage, but, but that's certainly one of the things here. Why does God require it? Because the spiritual, re, spiritual reality of your life determines the quality of your marriage. Okay? The spiritual reality of your life. We've been talking about things tonight that are from God. And we really have to ask the question, is an unbeliever going to live the way God says to live? No. So, you know, if two unbelievers want to get married, and, and uh, Lord bless them, they get married. But if a believer marries an unbeliever, it's not going to work because only two believers are fully committed to God's definition. And sometimes those two believers aren't even fully committed but two believers have, a com have the potential of having a common picture of marriage. Two believers have God's power to live out God's plan for marriage. I do an awful lot of marriage counseling, and it's real easy to believe that change isn't possible. We've been married, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I, you know, it's just not going to work. But it is. Because if you're a believer in Christ, the power of God is available to you. 
And if you believe that, then you can look across the room, across the bed, and say, it is possible for this person to change. And you can look in the mirror and say, it's possible for this person to change. Only two believers in Christ will be focused on honoring God by following His plan for marriage. If a man is unfaithful to his wife, and she's a believer in Christ, what's she supposed to do? Answer me, class. What? Forgive. That's the right answer. And he knows that. But he's not a believer. And so he looks across the room and says, you're supposed to forgive. How's that going to work out? So she forgives. And she finds out the whole story. And she is furious. In the Old, Old Testament, in the Proverbs, it talked about adultery and says, you think you're going to get rid of it until the jealous husband comes and puts a, an arrow through your liver. <laughs> and a wife can get that mad, and a husband can get that mad. And the unbeliever looks over and goes, you're supposed to forgive. And somebody looks at the unbeliever and says, you're supposed to lay down your life for your wife. No! No, I'm not going to do that. That's what happens when a believer and an unbeliever gets married and then has a problem. Why should the unbeliever change? Where's the motivation? Well, to stay married. Well, that's, that's some motivation, but frankly, in today's society, it isn't that much. Only two believers will be focused on saying, I know we've made mistakes, I know we've done wrong, but we've got to find a way to honor God in this marriage. Only two believers can find joyful, peaceful, enduring marriage that blesses them and honors God. This is God's setting on the GPS of marriage. I don't know what your setting is, but this is God's. And you need to set your GPS for this and say, that's where I need to head. Whether I'm unmarried, looking to get married, maybe I'm, maybe I'm just trying to encourage others. This is the setting on the GPS. Um, you know, if you're, if you're a, an, an internet person, you might, have, uh, you might have seen this video, but I'd like to play it for you again and, and uh, see what it might have to teach us about marriage. Marriage. 